Our guest today is Colonel Larry Wilkerson. He served for 31 years in the US Army, starting as a helicopter pilot during the Vietnam War. Later in his career, he was Chief of Staff to US Secretary of State Colin Powell. He has also taught at William and Mary College and at George Washington University. Colonel Wilkerson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've had a distinguished career in military and public service, centered on identifying and mitigating threats faced by the country. In your opinion, what is the greatest threat facing the United States? Today, it's uh, nuclear weapons and climate. Uh, those are the two threats confronting the world that are existential right now. We have abandoned all arms control. Um, we did it primarily. We abandoned the ABM treaty under my administration, as it were, George W. Bush. And then we proceeded to abandon everything else, including Colin Powell's signature achievement, which he often reminded me of under Ronald Reagan when he was deputy and then national security advisor, the INF treaty, which eliminated, as he would always say ecstatically, an entire class of nuclear weapons, the most dangerous class, as a matter of fact. Um, and we're on the verge of eliminating the last vestige of nuclear arms control, the New START Treaty, which I dare say Vladimir Putin, given the language passing between Washington and Moscow right now, will not be uh, willing to renew. I hope I'm wrong, but uh, that's just colossally dangerous. We're back at a time, for example, where I hear general officers admirals, as I heard uh, read about, uh, they talk about nuclear weapons now, as they did in the early 50s, as battlefield weapons, as having utility on the battlefield. Um, the Russians have actually, as I understand it from the Finns and the Swedes, who monitor it pretty closely, put it in their written doctrine that tactical nuclear weapons have battlefield utility. This is very dangerous. Um, we're back at a time where some would say we're as dangerous uh, with regard to nuclear weapons as the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, or in my estimation, a far more dangerous crisis as most Americans knew very little about, the Berlin Crisis of the same time frame, where we actually watched over the East Germans as they built the Schanmauer, the Wall of Shame, the Berlin Wall. You mentioned um, battlefield tactical nukes. And that's certainly come up in the discussion over Russian Ukraine. I'd like to turn to that conflict. As you look at the um, the conflict from the buildup to the crisis and then the outbreak of kinetic warfare, if you were to issue a report card to the Biden administration on how it's handled the conflict, what would that report card say? I think it would be a D to a D minus with uh, some parenthetical exceptions for the president himself. As a matter of fact, when Biden is Biden, most most, uh, as Powell used to describe him, kind of not necessarily consistent, even ambiguous from time to time. That, those are not necessarily bad qualities for a president. So as, as he has wandered through the ambiguity and the statements that seem like his followers have to retract or modify afterwards, he's actually been pretty cogent. Um, saying one thing for Vladimir Putin, another thing for his domestic political audience, and yet another thing for reality. So I credit him with that. I don't credit Tony Blinken at all, Jake Sullivan at all, or anybody else in the diplomatic corps that I've heard talk. They are as bad as Western media from London to Washington to, I shouldn't say Tokyo, though from times Tokyo can get into it. 
um, warmongering media. I've never seen anything like it. I, I didn't live through, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and William Randolph Hearst and all those good guys. Uh, you find me the war and I'll sell it for you, that sort of thing. Um, but this is terrible what the media is doing. It, it has become, oh, it's white Christians. Oh, my God, they're Ukrainians living in the United States. Oh, this is a war we can love. And it's been that way. And no one's telling the truth. The truth is very much different from what Moscow's media is putting out and what Washington and others, Western media is putting out. It's very different. The reality is significantly different from what both sides are saying. And if you understand that the only way to resolve this crisis, and it should be resolved yesterday, is diplomacy, then that really leaves you wanting a great deal. No one seems to be interested in it. I'd like to drill down a little bit on that. What are the truths that the media in Moscow and Washington are not sharing with the public? The most glaring one is that Russia is not going to lose, period. Russia has strategic depth, 11 time zones, like no other country on earth. Uh, Russia has absorbed invasions in the past. Russia is not going to lose. I don't care what Zelensky does. I don't care what NATO does. Russia is not going to lose. Now, if NATO were to come at her with a full might, then we'd have nuclear war and we'd all lose. So that, you know, that's hardly a victory. It's not even a Pyrrhic victory. So that's part of it is that they're just not pitching the war right. So if it's an endless contest in the heart of Europe with people dying every day, what's your solution? Sit down and talk. Let's stop this stupid conflict. That's the simple reality of it. I'd like to turn now to China. How would you assess the strategic threat posed by China to the United States? Significantly worse than it was when I left the Bush administration, ever since President Carter made it official. And Nixon and Kissinger and Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai talked in Beijing and affected a sort of rapprochement between China and the United States. We essentially said, we recognize there's only one China. And they essentially said, we recognize you have a relationship with Taiwan. And we said, okay, as long as you never use force against Taiwan, we will not make Taiwan an independent state in an internationally legal sense. Now uh, we got people like Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, my old boss on the policy planning staff of state, saying we should have strategic clarity. Richard, you're a lunatic. It's worked for 40 years. Why would you want to stop until it is effectively not working? Then you might want to stop and have strategic clarity. But strategic clarity is lunacy because we couldn't beat China were China to use military force against Taiwan, ergo nuclear weapons. You talk about the American people waking up tomorrow morning, you'd have 100,000 casualties in the first 10 weeks. You'd have immediately two carriers on the bottom of the ocean. That's 5,000 men and women each. That's 10,000. My God, let's say 2,000 of one carrier strike group survived and they're in the water. They're survivors in the water. Think World War II, flames and diesel. Mm -hmm. You couldn't pick them up because the escort ships for a carrier today do not have sufficient berth space to take them on board. You'd have to have some kind of special vessels. Take a look at the Chinese fishing fleet sometimes. It's 15 times bigger than the United States Navy. Hmm. And most of those boats are armed. This is an incredible flotilla that the Chinese have. And we could never in the South China Sea think that we could beat them, maybe tie them because our technology is better, our missiles are better, our 
some things are better. Chinese have pretty damn good torpedoes and and very um, good very good shore to ship missiles, which they've been developing in the last twenty years. Just flocks of them in Fujian Province alone. Yep. They could shoot six hundred at Taiwan tomorrow morning over their coffee. So this is preposterous. Strategic ambiguity is working. We should keep it that way. But people seem to think in the Congress and in the White House that clarity is what is necessary. They're going to wake up one day when all of a sudden they have to do it. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be dangerous. And I suspect we won't do it. I suspect it'll all be rhetoric. I guess we should explain for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the phrase that strategic ambiguity refers to the lack of definitive clarity over whether the U.S. would go to war to defend Taiwan. I'd like to double click on one aspect of your answer You know, on China. Are you saying that the United States would likely lose a conflict with China if it went to war over Taiwan? I think if the United States went to war with Russia on exterior lines in Europe, it would lose the first six weeks, surely. They'd lose badly, and the American people would have to be confronted with 10,000 casualties a day, something they haven't been confronted with in their lifetime. Um, I think in China, it would be very much the same, maybe even worse. And every war game or simulation that I participated in when I was in the military, over 60, when we wound up with that sort of thing years ago, when the Chinese didn't have the formidable capabilities that they do today, years ago, when we wound up with that sort of situation, you wound up contemplating the use of nuclear weapons because what you had done is you had taken out their air force, you had taken out their navy, or it had become a fleet in being, which is a military term for they went to port and wouldn't come out. Hmm. Um, and we're looking at mounting an invasion of China. Now, we've taken a lot of attrition in our Air Force and Navy, too, not quite as badly as the Chinese, but pretty bad. And we're thinking about mounting an invasion of China. Anyone who does that is an idiot. Ever watch The Princess Bride? <laughs> you do not want to put land forces in China. Our army right now is smaller than the army of Bangladesh. And they fell 27,000 recruits short of their recruiting goal this past year. The Navy just announced it would start taking 40-year-olds as recruits. That's how desperate the all-volunteer force is for people today. And China doesn't have any problem putting two and a half, three million men and women out. So you'd never invade China. So what do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You sit there in the war game and you contemplate using a tactical nuclear weapon on Shanghai or some other city where the Chinese will really notice it. And you think to yourself, they won't shoot back. That's crazy. They will shoot back. And why are the Chinese now thinking about and probably going to implement an entirely new nuclear posture? Because they have thought about this and they have said Mao was wrong. Mao Zedong said, I don't like nuclear weapons. I don't want too many. A couple of hundred is all I need just to deter others. Now the Chinese are probably going to break out and build lots of nuclear weapons in all classes, and they want to be able to ride out that first strike and retaliate. So we've made the world that much more dangerous with regard to numbers of nuclear weapons. I'd like to pull back the lens a bit to, to within the United States. In your opinion, what is the greatest threat to democracy in the United States? Americans, no question about it in my mind. There are a number of people out there. I'm a Republican, after all. There are a number of people in my party, as I told a bunch of Democrats not too long ago, 
who were sitting around talking about how to make free and fair elections that the American people would accept the results of. So I said, don't just remember, remember that in hotel rooms and corporate lounges and so forth all around this country, my party's sitting down thinking the opposite. Hmm. It's thinking, how can it beat you? How can it illegally beat you if necessary? How can it gerrymander to beat you? How can it get in the ADP, ADP systems and close races and buy 50,000 votes here and 50,000 votes there? How can it cheat? How can it win, period, which is all my party cares about? Look at their record over the last 20 years. They haven't accomplished a thing except opposition. And if you get in power, they won't accomplish anything either, as they were previously. They, they, they just oppose. This is a tragic situation. What is the legacy of the last presidential administration on U.S. foreign policy? That's an interesting question and one that my answer will probably startle some people. I don't think Trump really moved too far from what U.S. foreign policy already was and what U.S. foreign policy had really dramatically morphed into post 9-11. But what the terrorist attack what they did was they put a, a group of people into both the deep state and into actual office in the government who had been around for a long time. I, I call them the Hitlerites in waiting, uh, the, the Jacobins in waiting, the Trotsky, whatever radical term you want to use, because they are radicals. They're not conservatives. They're radicals. It put them in positions of power all across the government and all across the country. And frankly, I suspect there are quite a few of them that would love to have a Fosse state, uh, at least an authoritarian state. And the names that would come to my lips of some of these people might astonish you. One of them just got reelected governor of Florida, for example. Um, these people frighten me because they don't think democracy works. Uh, they don't think democracy can work. What would you like the U.S. public to understand about how U.S. foreign policy works and what its goals should be? I think it's imperative that at least the people who vote and the people who are concerned with the future of this country, whether it be as a democratic federal republic or whatever, um, need to know that right now, those wars that have been waged and waged relentlessly since September 11, 2001, and I could trace them back before that with a certain fidelity, um, are waged not for democracy, freedom, peace, all the things that our presidents tell us that they're waged for, um, but they're waged for the deep state and they're waged for the extension and maintenance of empire. Um, some Americans who are a little bit more uh, read into things than others would probably say, particularly in my political party, the Republicans, well, that's the way it should be. We are an empire and we need to manage it. And every now and then we need to bash people who want to stop our managing it or interfere with our managing it. Uh, and they would think that that was OK to say that and OK to say, for example, as I used to to my students, what we're really going to study here, students, is murder for the state. Now, the state's going to call it increasingly, uh, or in the past at least, according to Thomas Aquinas and others, <laughs> uh, the just war theory is going to say that we're exercising our rights on Article 51 at the UN, in some cases, defense, in other words. 
It's going to say defense thousands of miles from our own borders, for example. They're going to stretch this thing, the self-defense thing, all the way out there to, oh, Saddam Hussein threatens us. Remember Tony Blair? In 45 minutes, Saddam Hussein could put weapons of mass destruction on London. Uh, what a lie that was. Um, but that's they stretch these things if they are at all aware of what makes Americans tick. And they don't stretch them at all. They just put them out there, ball-faced, right in front of you. If not, it's maintenance of empire. Well, what does that mean? That means Lockheed Martin gets to make trillions of dollars off of these wars. That means that Halliburton, for example, Dick Cheney, CEO of Halliburton before he was vice president of the United States, Halliburton gets to make $44 billion off of Iraq and Afghanistan alone. So that's part of it. You understand why we're going to war. You understand, I tell my students, why we're killing people for the state. Why young people are asked to go in uniform and under arms to kill people for the state is not the preservation of our democracy, not the defense of our way of life, not the defense of our shores, certainly. Your shores, your property, your home, it's to kill people who are opposed to our very predatory form of capitalism extant now all over the world, to include our banking system, our financial system, and everything else. That's what it's for. So if you understand that and you support that, more power to you. Keep on going until somebody else builds a coalition against you and destroys you, which is what history argues the world will always do eventually. I want out. I think I'll go to Canada. I think I'll go to New Zealand. I'll do something else other than be here and remain a part of this imperial project, which is going to fall apart. Where do you see it engraved in stone that America's empire is forever? What empire in human history, in 5,000 years of human history, what empire has persevered through, through it all? The empire that the sun never set upon, Britain, gone. We replaced it. Empires do not do too well over time. Colonel Wilkerson, as we come towards the end of our interview, I wanted to ask you, are there any particular risks that you see in the militarization of U.S. foreign policy, the, um, the increasing use of military assets to accomplish what are ostensibly civilian goals, and also the... Um, appointment of former military officers or serving military officers into what used to be exclusively civilian occupations in the administration? I think, yeah, I think it's very dangerous, um, particularly the latter point you made. Um, these military officers going out into civilian occupations, like Secretary Austin. I, I don't know Lloyd Austin, but I, I suspect he's an honorable man, but I would never make a uniformed military officer Secretary of Defense. There's a reason why we weren't doing that. The reason why George Marshall was the only exception um, with regard to um, the tenure, I think it was then, then we attenuated it to seven years, then five years out of uniform. Now I think you could probably do it and get a waiver from Congress. That's very dangerous, I think, because it brings that military mindset into what should be a civilian mindset, a role that a civilian should fulfill. The the other aspect of it, the militarization of U.S. foreign policy does something very, very counter to our genuine interests. It dulls the knife of diplomacy. 
It makes diplomacy second fiddle. Even now today, it's fourth or fifth fiddle. It doesn't even really exist. We have no diplomatists. What we have is people who make the way for military action. And whether it's Tony Blinken, the ultimate diplomatist, supposedly, he's not shown me an inkling of diplomacy ability. Jake Sullivan has not shown me anything. Wang Yi and Sergey Lavrov, by contrast, are supremely competent diplomatists. And this, this is who these guys are up against. So what do you use? You use the military instrument because your diplomacy doesn't work very well. You don't want it to work well. Then the third thing, the rest of the world, and history screams this at us, the rest of the world tires of this after a while. What is a while? Centuries? Is it decades? What is it? And it bands together, at least its most formidable components, think the other near-peer powers, and it gets you. It takes you down. It becomes collectively against you. And in this case, it could be economically and financially that it does this, not necessarily militarily. The Chinese are already hard at work on regional, and I suspect they have global implications for this, currency replacement, banking system replacement, financial system replacement. Think SWIFT, for example. They don't like being treated like third and fourth class citizens within our financial network anytime we decide we want to do that sanctions being the leading instrument we use. So they're working on alternatives. One day, these alternatives will start to grow to the point where they compete and where they even surpass. And that's how you go down. Colonel Wilkerson, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.